podcast. This week's book club episode brings us to another corner of Shakespeare's work that I confess I don't know very well. The story of King Henry VI is told over three plays, although to be honest, it's more a trilogy of plays that happened during the time that he is king. A variety of theories exist about when each of these plays was written, but since we are going through the stories of the eight connected history plays in a chronological sequence, it obviously makes sense for us to start this next instalment with King Henry VI, Part 1. The play begins with the funeral of Henry V. Any majesty or ceremony is soon upended by a spat that breaks out between rival lords arguing. Immediately, we have a sense that now that Henry, the great heroic king, has died, the world is going to have to change, and probably devolve into a power struggle, since Henry's son, the title character Henry VI, is still a child and therefore can't really rule on his own. In the play's second scene, we get a beautiful image from Joan of Arc, who is a major character in the play. Glory is like a circle in the water, which never ceaseth to enlarge itself, till by broad spreading it disperse to naught. With Henry's death, the English circle ends, dispersed are the glories it included. Joan all but foretells what is to come. A great deal of strife will follow Henry's death, and it will encompass the rest of this play and the two that follow. The Wars of the Roses are what must follow. Joan's image of a ripple on a pool of water expanding until it has nowhere else to go and disappears is as beautiful as it is simple. The death of Henry V and the Wars of the Roses appear in this play in the correct order, but that's about the most that can be said for its historical accuracy. Shakespeare plays very fast and loose with his source material. He cherry-picks key incidents and often rearranges the historical timeline to suit his own narrative purposes. So, battles are rearranged, people manage to witness events that happened long after their historical deaths, and in general, history is streamlined for dramatic effect. You might be tempted to say that this is nothing new, In fact, at the time of writing, it absolutely was new. The popularity of plays that depicted the history of England in the late 16th century was precisely because of plays like this. The Henry VI plays were the ones that put Shakespeare's name on the map, although contemporary scholarship is reasonably convinced that there were other hands at work within this play. We're fairly certain that Shakespeare was responsible for one of the most elegant and memorable scenes known as the Temple Garden scene. This is the Elizabethan equivalent of an origin story. In this scene, to settle an argument, or indeed to see which side of it has the majority, Richard Plantagenet suggests that his followers all pluck a white rose. His opponent, the Earl of Somerset, encourages his followers to pick a red rose. And thus, Shakespeare proposes an explanation for how the House of York picked a white rose and the House of Lancaster went with red. Warwick, one of those rose pickers, gets a very prescient line, entirely the kind of thing we like to see in the early stages of a history cycle. He says, And here I prophesy, this brawl today grown to this faction in the temple garden, shall send between the red rose and the white 
a thousand souls to death and deadly night. Those thousand souls will die in what will become known as the War of the Roses. For all that, this part of Henry VI isn't too concerned with the travails of the houses of Lancaster and York, since their conflict is just getting organised and started. This play is primarily remembered for the face-off between Joan of Arc and Lord Talbot. In some of the main episodes of the Hamlet podcast, I've spoken on a few occasions about the shift from the old world of medieval chivalry into the newer world of the Renaissance. This shifting point feels quite central to this play also. Chivalry, feudal respect and ancient loyalties, heroic values and a kind of older ethos all seem to be fading away in the world of this play. In the aftermath of a heroic king like Henry V, it's to be expected, but it feels like this anxiety of change, of a loss, runs throughout the play. Shakespeare is, of course, setting us up for consistent and unheroic conflict, and things will go from bad to worse, and this mood of decay is impressively palpable. In the middle of the play, Henry belies his youth with a brilliant and effective image. Believe me, lords, my tender years can tell. Civil dissension is a viperous worm that gnaws the bowels of the commonwealth. It's grisly and evocative, but it really captures the rot that's setting in. Standing up in the face of all this change, we have an English soldier, very much of that older world, Lord Talbot. He's so ferocious that the French quake at his name, and we get repeated descriptions of how effective and violent he can be. But the force he comes up against in the play is quite the opposite of any foe he's met before. Shakespeare pits him against Joan of Arc. Now, putting such a famous and divisive figure on the stage will always be a gamble. You can't really present Joan without having an opinion about her. Just ask George Bernard Shaw. Interestingly, Shakespeare pushes us to the limit, revising his opinions throughout the play, or perhaps ours. To the French, she seems pure, a country girl driven by the voice of God to lead her country to victory against these unwelcome English. Those English, bear in mind, were the ones who handed her over to the Inquisition and to her death at the stake. This being an English play, there has to be some challenge to Joan's saintliness, and so much is made of the pronunciation of her name. Joan la Pucelle in French means Joan the Virgin, but contemporary English slang could make Pucelle into puzzle, which was another word for a whore. Over the course of the play, Joan goes from being called an Amazon, a mythical warrior, and a Deborah, a biblical one, to a whore. Towards the end, in a scene that must have intrigued audiences in an England increasingly obsessed with witchcraft, Joan summons up a group of fiends, or demons, to help her with her cause, but they all deny her and ignore her, and she cannot escape her famous or infamous fate. Joan won't be the only woman in this trilogy of plays to dabble in the occult, delighting Shakespeare's audience, but she's certainly the most famous. Commentators might even suggest that this is her play, or hers and Talbot's, but the two of them are dead by the time we reach Act 4. To assign this play to them alone 
is to overlook a very interesting power dynamic that occurs throughout this play. It's especially important not to overlook this given the time that the play was written. This dynamic is the submission of men to powerful and magnetic women. While Joan obviously meets a horrific end in the play, she first appears as a patriotic and very impressive character. She transcends all of the traps that the French Dauphin lays for her and quickly earns his confidence. And some might say she seduces him. Indeed, the scene of their single combat is deliberately, I would suggest, laced with a kind of a sexual overtone. Elsewhere, we have the curious scene between the Countess Auvergne and Lord Talbot. She tries to trap him in her castle, but he is in no way subdued by her. He is the old guard, the valiant ambassador from a time wherein soldiers would not be so foolish as to be sidetracked by a woman. He is also English, and the Dauphin is French. Of course, there are three women in this play, and the third of these is Margaret. She is the single largest role in all of Shakespeare for a woman, and she appears in all four of the plays in this tetralogy, the only character to do so. In this play, she manages to seduce Lord Suffolk with her poise and her beauty. Ever the strategist, he decides that rather than marry her himself, he'd rather have her married to Henry, making her the queen. As such, another oath is broken because Henry is supposed to marry somebody else, but this play, which is so full of ceremonies undone, from the funeral at the start to Henry's coronation, which goes awry, and now this promise of marriage being broken, will continue to show us a world that is falling apart. Suffolk shows his hand in the closing lines of the whole play when he says, Thus Suffolk hath prevailed, and thus he goes, as did the youthful Paris once to Greece, with hope to find the like event in love, but prosper better than the Trojan did. Margaret shall now be queen and rule the king, but I will rule both her, the king, and realm. It's worth remembering the affinity we discussed elsewhere, linking England with Troy. Paris was a Trojan prince who went to Greece and slept with a queen there, causing a huge war. Suffolk hopes to prosper better than the Trojan, Paris, imagining that his influence over Margaret will allow him to rule both her, the king, and the whole realm. It's very interesting that, by extension, he likens Margaret to Helen. She, like Helen, is a foreign woman whose move to Troy will engender great calamity. Joan of Arc may have been considered the scourge of the English at the start of the play, but by heavens it's not her by the end. Margaret will have quite a few ideas of her own, as we'll see all too well when we meet her again in the plays that follow. Of course, this is only part one of a trilogy, and indeed there is a fourth play that can be added to the end of this set of three. It's interesting to see that Shakespeare is planning, even from the get-go. A little earlier in the play, he's had Suffolk suggesting, Thou mayst not wander in that labyrinth, there minotaurs and ugly treasons lurk. Even this imagery is setting us up for what's going to happen by the end of this whole journey through the Wars of the Roses, because at the end, we have a minotaur, an ugly, treasonous king, the horrible, but theatrically ever so popular, Richard III. 
Since the history plays, particularly these Henry ones, can be a little challenging, I don't propose that we read all three of them in a row. I reckon you can have too much of a good thing, so instead we'll divide them up and intersperse them between other plays. This coming week is going to be a very busy one here at Hamlet Podcast Central, since I'm working on a nightly stream of podcasts for Dublin Theatre Festival. If you're interested, you're very welcome to visit persiansthepodcast.com for more information about that project, introducing a Greek tragedy in a new Irish language translation. Given how busy I know it's going to be, the play I've chosen for next week's book club is one I've actually directed, and that's All's Well That Ends Well. All of the plays I've chosen for this month of October have various elements of magic or darkness or curses to them for the time of year we're in, and this play, All's Well That Ends Well, may surprise you. I hope you enjoy reading it, and I'll speak to you next time.